Hello, all you wonderful listeners and subscribers to the Peak Prosperity channel. Listen, I have a big treat for you. If you want to know what's happening, why the banking system is in crisis and why that's going to be a perpetual crisis, you need to widen up a little bit and step back. Fortunately, I just recorded a and presented a big, long piece to Berkeley's sustainability class. A lot of fun. I enjoy speaking with them every year. Smart kids. I'm going to share that same presentation with you here, and we're going to do it in three parts. So here in part one, we're going to set the whole thing up. Part two, we're going to talk about energy and the economy. And then in part three, the environment and what we can do about all of this. So look out for those other parts. As always, leave your comments down below. I read them all. I just want to know what you think. This is my biggest, most important framing. If you get this, I think you understand, well both what's going to happen in the future and why. It's both predictive and explanatory. So if you're curious at all about where this puck is going and you want to be able to skate there, you're going to want to watch this series. Thanks for listening, and uh, let's dive right into it, and I'll be right back at the end of this. So I want to define what I consider to be the main challenge we have today, which is uh, that we're on a very unsustainable course right now. And I want to talk about how we got there. And my orientation, again, is to pulled everything together. I love this quote from Leonardo da Vinci, which is that we need to learn how to see. Everything connects to everything. So that's what I want to do here is connect some dots because they really need to be connected. Um, and it's really important that, that we understand how these three things come together. So I connect the economy with energy, with the environment. I do a lot of focus on the economy because everything we want to do from a point of sustainability requires us to organize ourselves in complex fashions. Not complicated. Complicated solvable. Computers can help us. Complex means we're in a system by its very nature is unpredictable. Complex systems defy our ability to really predict them. They have what are called emergent properties. They owe all of their order to the flow of energy through all of that. And of course, here we are organisms living on the outer skin of this ball of, of planet called the Earth. And so our environment is very, very important. All three of these things come together. I don't believe it's possible for us to secure any one of these three things in isolation anymore. But unfortunately, all of our institutions, all of our power structures have been geared around making sure the economy, that's, that's the child we love most in this story. If the economy needs help, we give the economy help. But as we squeeze on that economy balloon, of course, our environment suffers or increasingly we're going to have problems with energy. Now, all of this is contained in the video series that Lauren mentioned, but as well, it's in this book. It just came out, happened to make the bestseller list. So I'm very happy about that because it means more people will hear this story, at least to debate it. Let's talk about it. Let's have a robust, full-throated debate on why I might or might not be wrong about these things. But I do believe that this framing I'm going to give you is predictive. And it's explanatory. So that's why I'm excited to share it here today with, with all of you people just starting your lives in this area, very important area, uh, sustainability. So I have two shocking claims I'm going to make today. The first is that we live on a sphere and it has a finite volume and a finite surface area. It's finite. And the second thing is that infinite economic growth on a finite planet is not possible. It's also a really bad self-destructive idea, as I think we'll uh, see very shortly. So before we dive in, I just want to separate very quickly between beliefs and opinions. Beliefs are a matter of the amygdala. Beliefs are guarded by emotions. You know you're in a belief-oriented conversation when emotions arise very quickly. Opinions are rooted in facts. We can have an opinion-based conversation. It can even get heated. It could go back and forth. We could disagree. 
But opinions can be changed. Beliefs are a lot more stubborn. They tend to be nature for whatever. In her infinite wisdom, nature said, when you get a belief, humans, hold on to it. Right. And so we do. And this is the cultural belief I really need to challenge, which is that we need economic growth. It's presented every time you open a newspaper, every time the Treasury Secretary or a bank official or anybody in an economic profession talks about the future, they talk about it as if growth was not only preordained as a manifest destiny of ours, but necessary. It's not actually, but I think as we'll see as we get closer, if I do a good job, it's actually a requirement, not of us, not of our earth, not even of the economy. It's actually a requirement rooted in our money system. And that's where the trouble really begins because every money system enforces some behaviors, punishes others. So I want to challenge this belief that growth is a given and that the future is going to look just like today, just bigger, right? So let's start here with really the, the topic that I've been asked to speak on, which is this idea of what is wealth. Now, this seems like it should be an easy conversation to have because we all know that the person with the most money is the wealthiest person. But this is not actually correct. It's not the right way to think about it because what we call money or currency is a human construct. I don't care which country it comes from. I don't care whose picture's on it or what kind of paper or plastic it's made out of. All money in the world shares a characteristic right now, which is that it's loaned into existence. It's a feature of the monetary system. It's just how modern banking works. But it's that's a very profound statement that our money is loaned into existence. And this would be a whole hour itself. I could show you all about how the banking system works. Um, I could show you, you know, how this all actually comes together. But um, this is actually the situation. So that's what we call wealth, but it's not actually wealth. Real wealth is, we're going to start with how the Schumacher, Small is Beautiful Foundation people, they talked about wealth in terms of three levels. E.F. Schumacher did. He said, look, there's primary wealth which is rich soils, rich ores, clean water, rich fisheries, seams of ores and coal and, and fossil fuels down in the ground. That's the primary wealth. And not all nations were bestowed equally, right? Costa Rica is bestowed with beautiful geography, which allows it to put up solar, wind, as well as uh, uh, hydropower. And they have a very different sort of primary wealth, if you will, geographically speaking, compared to, say, Germany, which is a lot flatter and darker and, and grayer. So primary wealth is really a matter of geography and natural blessings as, as, it's, as your uh, country was founded. And primary wealth becomes secondary wealth because humans will take the ore and turn it into steel and the fish gets to market and the rich soils become food in the store and the trees become lumber and so on. So secondary wealth is both the output of converting primary wealth into something useful to humans and it's the means of production. Now, we have a transitive rule here. Without primary wealth, you can't have secondary wealth. If you don't have any trees, you can't have any lumber, right? So primary wealth begets secondary wealth. So those two things follow along. Tertiary wealth, this is a stock trading floor at UBS before it got closed down. But uh, the idea is that tertiary wealth is what we've been told our whole lives is actually wealth. So this is currencies, physical paper currencies, stocks, bonds, derivatives, you name it. All these paper products, which are very fancy, uh, consume a lot of human activity to manage, maintain, 
make them more and more complicated, if not complex in the case of derivatives, whole other story there. But this is tertiary wealth. Now, transitive rule. Tertiary wealth only has value to us if we can spend it on some secondary wealth. I mean, what good would it be to have a lot of money in the bank, but you couldn't buy a house, you can't buy a car, you can't buy any food, you can't have any electricity show up? The wealth itself is not contained in the currency, in the marker, in the paper agreement. But tertiary wealth is very, very important because it's our social agreement. It's how we organize ourselves. Without having a well-functioning money system, we can't accomplish all these other things out there that we need to do if we're going to manage 8 billion people figuring out how to move into the future uh, that we all see coming. So this transitive rule follows from A to B to C. Without primary wealth, there's no secondary wealth. Without secondary wealth, there's no tertiary wealth, right? Um, so this is, I just want to start reorganizing where we are in the wealth story because 200 years ago in my town here, if you asked who's the wealthiest person in town, everybody points immediately to the person who owns the most land because land is where the wealth came from. It either had the water power on it or it had the solar collection on it in the form of, of croplands or trees or whatever. But, but wealth was always understood to be this thing that flowed out of the natural world. And it's only with fossil fuels that we've been able to sort of forget that for 100, 110 years now. And, and so that's been amazing. And it's also a, a, an anomalous era that I think is coming to an end. So you can think about it as a pyramid. The wealth pyramid says that it's impossible to have more tertiary wealth than secondary, and it's impossible to have more secondary wealth than primary. It's just how this whole thing is built. It's getting a little top heavy because, well, I'll show you what the data is around that. Now, back up to the statement, all money is loaned into existence. It means that for every unit of currency out there in the system, there is an offsetting amount of debt in the system. Kind of a profound statement because here's what we know about debts. They have both a principal component and an interest-bearing component, which is time-based. So it's my mortgage is at 3% per year or 4% per year or now closer to 7% per year. I'm going to get interest on my bank account at you know, 2% per annum. I'm going to be paying you know, X percent per month on my credit card. Interest per unit of time. The feature that flows from that is that there is always more debt than money in the system. It's just how it works. So right now in the United States, there's give or take around $20 trillion of money in the system, and there's about $92 trillion of debt. So it, that has, uh, as I said, it enforces some, punishes some behavior. So the enforcing function of a debt-based money system is, man, when you're in debt, you work hard to make sure that you don't violate the terms of that debt. Because if you do, People come after you, you lose your house, you lose your car, whatever, things happen. So, so debt-based systems are great for getting people motivated. They also have a problem, a math problem built right into their core. So first up, money is what we're calling money. It's just a claim on wealth. I hold money today because I don't need to consume everything today. I hold, I store money up in a bank account because tomorrow I might need to buy a new car or put a kid through college or whatever the story is. But that money itself is not wealth. It's a claim on wealth. It's a claim on goods and services in the future. Not today because I'm going to hold money as a store of wealth or a store of value for tomorrow. Well, then what's debt? What is debt? Well, debt's just a claim on future money. 
That's what it is. So when I have a 30-year mortgage, somebody's out there who holds that mortgage has made a claim on my monthly income for 30 years. For 360 months, they're going to have a claim on my future money flows. So that's what debt is. All right. Well, if debt is a claim on future money, we should probably be very concerned with how much debt is out there, how fast is it growing, and what are we going to spend it all on? Or what's it, what's it claiming? What does the future look like? So this is really a future-based conversation we're having here. Now, we just saw just a couple days ago, that's Jerome Powell on the bottom, and Cynthia Loomis out of Wyoming was asking a question on monetary policy in the economy. Fairly dry question. She said, Jerome, chairman of the Federal Reserve, is our level of debt in the United States, is it sustainable? And he said, yeah, it is. She said, really? And he said, well, let me be more clear. He said, quote, the problem is that we're on a path where the debt is growing substantially faster than the economy. And that, by the definition, in the long run is unsustainable. Hmm? Unsustainable? Well, this is the level of debt uh, seen here from about 1900 on the left all the way through to 2020. And I put the last three years of debt accumulation in that last little red bar, the United States has about, federally speaking, just federal, $31.4 trillion, which Jerome said is sustainable, but not the path it's on. So it's a little bit of a parsing. When you decode it a little bit, it's not, it's totally not sustainable because the path has been set in stone for over five decades. And so what he really should have said is how we've been conducting ourselves during the time everybody who's an adult has been alive that way that's not sustainable. So we know that, but what does that mean, right? And how do we think about it? So this is a chart from the US Federal Reserve on the top. These are the claims. That's total all sector debt securities in the solid line. So that's all debt, just debt, student debt, corporate debt, household debt, municipal, federal debt, just debt, not liabilities. Liabilities would be the train tracks we haven't yet repaired that need repair, the social security fund that is not yet funded, and we know it's underfunded, uh, the pensions that haven't been set aside at the municipal level, not liabilities, just debt. So this is what Jerome Powell is saying is not sustainable because on top is the claims. Remember, this is debt. So that's a claim on the future money. The bottom dotted line is GDP, gross domestic product. That's the income in this story. You can just squint at that and see that the top line is growing at a different pace from the bottom line. In a household level, we would say our credit card debt is piling up by 50,000 a year, but our income is only growing by $10,000 a year. Sooner or later, that's what we call a math problem. So you don't need a fancy degree or any math to just see that if we just looked at this here in terms of the slopes of the line, so I drew an arrow across the GDP, just sort of tracking its rate of accumulation or growth. And then here's this first red line on the bottom shows you sort of the slope of that debt accumulation over the past 50 years, but the past five years, it's steepened considerably. And so all you need to know about why this is an unsustainable level of debt accumulation is because the slope of this line is less than the slope of these lines here. That's it. That, that's all the economics you actually need to understand that we're on an unsustainable level of debt accumulation. The only way that makes sense is if you're using that debt to invest in things that are going to give you that sustainable, durable future. If we had spent in the last five years this kind of money here, that rate of accumulation of debt, if we had spent that 
on permaculture, you know, installations and, and knowledge expansion, if we'd spent it on building soils out of our farmlands, of coming up with new ways of, of building houses, which we've known how to do since the 70s, right? R40 walls, R60 ceilings, put the, put the glass on the south side, nice overhangs, right? If we'd been doing those things, I would have a different story than the one I am telling you, which is we fundamentally spent a lot of that debt accumulation on things that aren't here to help us meet the future challenges. It's been kind of frittered away. So eventually this story breaks, either it breaks all on its own or somebody comes along politically and says, ah, we should do something about this. That's not going to happen because that story that let's do something about this politically, that's called austerity. Nobody likes it. You get voted out of office instantly when you tell people, oh, time to start paying back the debts of the people who came before you, right? And you have to live way below your means so that we can pay that stuff back, right? Um, it's never a politically popular story. So all things being equal, we're just going to keep piling up the debt until it becomes an actual problem. Now, debt-based money, it's a great idea. When we first came up with this, we humans came up with this idea about in the 1600s. We enshrined it here in the United States in 1913 with the establishment of the Federal Reserve. It's a great idea. 1913 probably made sense. You know, the world seemed limitless. We hadn't discovered oil really in any significant way yet. The oceans hadn't been fully mapped, yada, yada. Um, if there are no resource limits, it works out perfectly. In a finite, limited world, eh, it doesn't work out so good. So again, my operative statement, infinite exponential growth is not possible. Wait a minute, exponential growth. I just, I just threw a new term in there. So there's linear growth, exponential growth. What is this exponential growth thing? What, what is this exactly? Well, it, it looks like this. Um, this conventionally colloquially called a hockey stick chart, right? So there's a, a chart that seems to be carrying along and then all of a sudden it turns the corner and goes up very, very steeply. That's what we would look at as, a, as an exponential chart. Now, the problem with a chart like this, easy to look at, very hard to intuitively understand because as humans, we are wired for linear equations. So I have a, a story here about how we can maybe embody understanding exponential growth a little better. And it works like this. So let's imagine that I have a magic eyedropper and it's magic because you hold out your left hand like this person here and I put a drop of water in your hand and that drop of water is going to double every minute. So we put that drop of water in, a minute passes. Now you have two drops of water in your hand and another minute passes. And then you have four drops of water in your hand. And after about five minutes, you can fill up a thimble. So let's take this now to an example. This is a stadium. It's going to get wrecked. I picked it at random. Yankee Stadium. I'm from Massachusetts. It's an old, it's a thing. So I'm going to do two things in the stadium. First, we put a wall across the back. We make it watertight. Two you get handcuffed to the highest row of bleacher seats in the stadium. And at 12 o'clock this after tomorrow, you're handcuffed to the bleacher seat and I put one of these magic drops down on the pitcher's mound. The question is, how long do you have to escape from your handcuffs? Is it years? Is it weeks? Is it days? Is it minutes? Is it hours? So just think of an answer in your head, how long you intuitively think you have to escape. So if we begin at 12 o'clock, the answer to this story is you have 50 minutes to escape from your handcuffs. 
if you think, hey, Chris looks like a, a bad estimator of size and volumes, I think he stinks at it. And he's underestimated the volume of this park by 100%. Well, then the answer for you would be 1251 for all you skeptics out there, because it would just take one more minute to go through one more doubling. Now, that's not the important question in this story. This is the important question. At what time is this park still 97% empty space? And how many of you realize the seriousness of your predicament? The answer is it's still only 3% full at 1245. At 1246, it's 6% full. At 1247, it goes to 12, 25, 50, 100. Done. Boom. Out. Off we go. Right? So this is important because you live in a world where we are surrounded by exponential functions. When I was born, there were about 3 billion people on this planet. Now we're at eight-ish and growing rapidly. This is looking at humans over a you know 10,000-year horizon. You can clearly see the exponential function in here. But for me to have been alive during a period of time when 5 billion people got added to the planet is a very unusual period of time. Oil production. Here we can see production equals consumption. This is an exponential chart. It's not linear. We started consuming it, and now we consume two, three, four percent more per year than the prior year. In fact, we are surrounded by all kinds of exponential charts, all of them driven by the population chart, which was the first one I gave you. I could give you dozens, if not hundreds of these charts, right? Could be miles of airline, air, you know, miles flown. It could be Krispy Kreme donuts sold, um, you know, pounds of lithium mined. It doesn't matter. We are chewing through the Earth's resources at a speeding, accelerating pace. And so that's one of the key features of an exponential system. Things just speed up at the end. So if you feel like things are going faster and faster, you're having a hard time keeping up with world events, this is my explanation for it. We are at an exponential convergence of multiple trends that are happening right now. And the keepers of the system are rooted in the past and they want, oh, they just, I get it. Though They got their finger through the brass ring. They just want things to keep going as they were. They want to preserve that status quo, but that's not the world we live in. We live in a world now where our money system was designed for infinity and we're bumping into hard limits right now. And so what do I mean by that? Um, just as an example, so this is from the Congressional Budget Office, totally boring. Zzz, you know, what is even is, is this? This is just what they think GDP growth might look like over these various decades out here. So uh, let's just squint at that nominal GDP row in yellow on the bottom and say that ah, from here forward, let's say three and a half percent. Three and a half percent is how much GDP is going to grow. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Well, GDP then would grow from the United States is currently a $23.32 trillion economy in 2021. And if we raise it for next 27 years to carry it forward to 2050, that means the United States will be a $59 trillion economy. Or in real terms, it's going to be about 53% larger. In other words, the United States alone has a plan as enshrined by the Congressional Budget Office, that the United States economy alone is going to be $35 trillion, which is about 40% of total world economy today. And we're still only going to have about 5 five or 6% of the world's population, but we're going to want to consume as much in that future as 40% of the world today. It's an astonishing, astonishing thing. Nobody, nobody even ever thinks about, do the resources exist? Like, 
What would that mean if the United States at 5% of the world's population was consuming as much as 40% of the world does today? Is that possible? What would that look like? What's involved? Is that scalable? None of this has been resolved. Of course, nobody's asking or answering these questions at the most senior levels, but they should be. So first up, infinite exponential growth is just not possible. This is a very simple concept to entertain, right? There's only so much of anything on the planet, be it fresh water, arable soil, most importantly, things like copper, lithium, oil, they all have finite amounts. So we should be aware of those. But even if we were you know, facing a, th a situation where we had many, many more of those resources than we think we do, eventually the story runs out. Again, is your stadium this big? Even if you think it's 100% bigger, even if we think, even if there's 100% more oil than has been calculated, sooner or later, you still run into the same problem, which is that you run out of it and or the, the environmental costs associated with consuming that resource exceed the benefit you get from it as per climate change, as per pollution, microplastics, whatever the stories are, right? So that's why we can't look at the economy in isolation. We can't just let people say, oh, we'll do anything, anything, we'll do anything in order to get the economy to grow because it's a bad time when it's not doing well to do anything other than make it grow. And when it is doing well, people don't want to talk about the other issues around its growth. So it's never a good time to talk about why economic growth is going to stop anyway. The only question is, is it going to stop on our terms or some other terms? And if we're wise, we would figure out how to get to steady state on our own terms. And if we're not wise, nature will resolve that for us. And she doesn't take, um, she doesn't have favorites in this story. She's, she just does what she does. So uh, we have to connect the economy to energy because as I showed you, we have these extraordinary claims on future money. Huge gigantic claims, $92 trillion in the US that's going to get paid back from the future economy. So let's talk about that really quick. Again, this is the only economic plan on the planet, growth, and then more growth, steady growth. How much? Oh, just We just want three and a half percent per year. Remember, anything growing by some percentage over a unit of time is growing exponentially. In our stadium example, it was 100% per minute, that constrains it down to a level where we can think about it and experience it viscerally, but three and a half percent per year is the same thing. Still exponential growth. Humans, give or take around 1% per year of population growth still gave us that hockey stick chart of humans seen over a long time stream. So this is the, if somebody said, Chris, I'll give you two minutes and one chart. Can you explain why we had the great financial crisis in 08? and why you think we're going to have another financial crisis here soon. And it's this chart in red coming from the Federal Reserve is again, total credit market debt in blue in that blue line. That is a perfect idealized exponential curve fit. So it's just asking the question, if we were going to explain or under, try and understand the mechanism underlying this system of debt, because we don't know anything about debt. We don't know how it's made. We don't know. We're just scientists peering in. We're from Mars. We're looking at, at debt and we're just saying, what, what can we tell about this system of debt? And what we can tell is um, <laughs> very quickly is that this debt right here, whoop, if I could get that red thing, maybe, that's not going away. Behind that black bar, is, a, is the R squared for this, which is 0.98, meaning there is a 98% explanatory power using an exponential curve fit for debt. 
So we can just say, without knowing anything else about how humans are behaving and how the system runs or what the laws are, I can tell you that debt accumulation in the United States follows a practically perfectly idealized exponential function. Okay, great. Second thing we'll notice here is exponential functions have another feature, which is something called doubling times, which is asking the question, how long before this thing we're measuring doubles? That's feature one, they, they all have doubling times. Feature two is that each doubling time has as much contained in it as all the prior doubling times combined. Um, you can look up the famous story about grains of rice on a chessboard to, to add up the math for yourself. But here, if we baseline debt at, say, $2 trillion back in the 1970, by 1977 here, it had become $4 trillion, and then it had become $8 trillion, and so on and so on. So we see here five complete doublings in four decades. And that is the system that everybody needs to have not change in order for the system did not change. Remember, Lauren showed you I have three core beliefs. One is that we're in a period of massive change. It's already upon us. This chart tells me economically why I think that's going to happen because it's not possible to go from 60 trillion in debt on this chart. We're already at 90 trillion. The next doubling needs to take us to 180 trillion, then 360 trillion, and so on and so forth until something breaks. So this period of exponential accumulation of debt made a lot of sense in 1913. It makes no sense in today's environment. But the people who are keepers of the system, they don't know any other way. So that's the prime tension that's been setting up is that eventually, my hypothesis, our financial system breaks in a sense because, well, because the keepers of it can't, they, they don't know how to be honest about it or they don't understand it at this level or they just have some fantasy that somehow magically we'll have all the resources we need to get there. So yeah, we got record amounts of debt all across the world. This isn't a US story. It's really a story of the world. This is China, it's India, it's Europe, it's everybody. Uh, it's global debt. It keeps climbing. You know, every year I do this course, I can just tack another, you know, 10 trillion bucks worth of, it's just more and more debt. Uh, COVID really accelerated this process enormously. But now we have to get down to putting these two pieces together because this is, this is the critical bit. All right, first up, when we think about energy, Energy is everything. So this is a quick energy budget right here. Let's say on the left, first box, total amount of energy. That's the total energy we have. This could be wind, it could be sun, it could be fossil fuels, doesn't matter. But we have a total amount of energy that humans pull out of the world. And then we have to do some things with it. The first is that we have to, the amount of energy we have to use to get energy, that has to be recycled into it because you got to keep this going. Windmills need to be replaced. Solar panels need to be remanufactured. Um, you know, oil fields deplete. We got to find new ones, whatever. So we have to use some energy to get energy. That's the blue loop on the bottom. Then we have to maintain what we've got. That takes energy. That's the capital, right? So, you know, you got to rebuild the LNG plants down in Freeport, Texas. You've got to um, repair your roads and bridges, keep your buildings, replace them. There's just a certain amount of energy required to keep our, what we'll call our capital stock. That's our buildings and infrastructure maintained, if not replaced. Great. So whatever's left after we're done with those necessary activities then is we can put into consumption. And consumption has two components. One, basic living, non-negotiable. We have to grow the food. Okay, we got to do that. We'd really like to keep our houses warm, etc. And the next, whatever's left after all of that is discretionary. Uh, you know, what's discretionary? We want to take a, a trip to 
you know, halfway around the world for a vacation. We'd like to drive a 6,000 pound car to soccer practice, whatever. Um, these are the, th the choices we make with our energy, but this is the total energy budget. It's not possible to break this budget. Um, it is what it is. So the question is, well, what happens if total energy is shrinking, not growing? Or what happens if the amount of energy we have to use to get energy, what if this loop is growing? Well, then it has to take from these other features up here. It just has to shrink those. So that's that's the story we live in. Now, of all the economic charts I have, this is the most robust. Nothing comes close. This is on the left chart, on the left side of the chart, in the y-axis, primary energy expressed in exajoules, very large unit, and it puts all of energy into one bucket. Um, so whether it's wind or solar or fossil fuels or nuclear or hydro, you can express the output from that in something called a joule, in this case, exajoules, very large number. And across the bottom on the x-axis, we, we have real GDP of the world. And when we do this on a worldwide basis, which is the only fair way to do it, because the United States has exported a lot of its primary energy consumption to China and then acted like it made some big significant energy gains, because look how much economy we have per unit of energy. But in fact, all we did was outsource it to a subdivision, as it were, in, in a corporate speak. But energy and GDP, this, this is the tightest line. This is just a straight line. And it hasn't changed over many, many, many decades. And it basically answers this one question. Um, is energy required to grow the economy? And the answer is yes. There is some relationship here where if you want more units of GDP across the X axis, you're going to require or use somehow more units of energy up the Y axis, period, full stop. This is the data we have. If it changes, I'll change. But right now, this is what we got. So, and it's really tight. The R squared on this is like 0.99 something. Um, it's, uh, it's very robust. So this says, whoa, hold on. If we're going to have, we have $90 trillion of debt in the US and we want to pay that back in the future, then we have to extend this line out into the future. And oh, well, then by definition, we're going to be consuming more energy. If we want to have more economy in the future, we're going to need more energy. It's just rock solid economics 101. Um, so here's the thing. We have exponential energy use in this story. This is not a linear chart. This is an exponential chart taken from Vaclav Smil, one of the best energy researchers in the world out of Canada, starting in 1800 on the left on through till this is the 2010 series here. Biofuels on the bottom. That's all we had in 1800 down here, back here. Biofuels, peat, dung, wood. Then um, we have uh, coal came online and then crude oil and natural gas. Collectively, that's three, three big bars here. And then there's hydro on top of that, nuclear. And then, um, wait a minute, where's, where's wind and solar? Well, let's take a look at this real quick. Um, before we do, 80% of all energy consumption in the world is from what we call fossil fuels. So, okay. Um, by the way, the amount of energy return we get out of that is extraordinary. Fossil fuels have a really big fat component of high energy that's available for us to use. Remember for discretionary, for basic living, for all that other stuff. It, it has an enormous energy return on energy invested. Uh, it's just unparalleled, it's extraordinary. So I'm gonna give you a couple numbers. The first one is 10. This is a really important number. Today, any calorie of food you eat down at the cafeteria or you get from DoorDash, any calorie of food that shows up 
at your plate has 10 calories of fossil fuels hidden within it, subsidized. That would be the farm tractors, of course, the fertilizers, which are all petroleum-based, of course. But then it also includes the transportation and the storage, the refrigeration, the packaging, the cooking, etc. Now, this is weird because up until about 1920 or so, this was an upside-down number. Every calorie of food had 0.1 calories of input energy that went into it. Uh, going up to it. So this, from about 1920 onwards, we got increasingly dependent on eating fossil fuels. Weird thing, but today we are all subsidized in our eating habits by fossil fuels. Just how it is. And so this is a new condition for humans. Not permanent, I dare argue, but it is new. And it's very disal you know, mind-altering to get our, our brains around it because um, it, asks, it says, hey, if we're not careful about this, we ought to understand that we have 8 billion people who are primarily fed principally through grains, which have been grown somewhere else, which have been shipped across the world. And all of that process required an enormous input of fossil fuels to make that happen. And when those fossil fuels are no longer available for that, what's the plan? Again, we ought to have plan B, which is you know growing things in a much more sustainable way, closing the nutrient loops, making sure that we're treating our soils like the precious little rainforest micro, you know, complex systems that they are and, um, and doing better with that. For now, we don't have to because fossil fuels gave us that luxury for a while. Again, infinite exponential growth is just not possible in this story. And this is the cultural story I have to break because economic growth is percentage per year. It's exponential growth. It's just not possible. So when we look at this exponential energy use, there's a couple of the things we need to know about it. First, Let's look at this because all, we hear a lot today about the energy transition. we got to make this energy transition. So let's look at an energy transition. For a long time, the world was on biofuels, which is those light gray bars starting in 1800, 1810, 1820, 30, 40. But right around 1860, on the, as far as my eyes are working, I can start to see the coal first begins to appear right there. You see that little black smear at the bottom. So coal is way better than, than uh, biofuels. So it's tons better. So you would think, because it's so much better, we switch right away, right? Steamships, uh, you know, steam-powered uh, engines that can like pump water and trains and all that stuff. It's way better, way better. So how long was it though? Using market forces, which is what happened back in the day, before the Industrial Revolution came along and coal replaced half, was now half the energy mix compared to biomass. And the answer is, one, two, three, four. Oh, it took four decades. It was 40 years before coal was fully half of the mix. Okay. All right. But then oil comes along. Oil's way better than coal. Super high density stuff. You can transport it as a liquid. It's way easier to handle than a solid. It's got much higher energy density, which means you can do these internal combustion engines, which means you can do fun things like jets and cars and all that. It's way better than coal. And it starts showing up around here on this chart. It's the first time you can sort of detect it on this chart. So the question is, well, how long before oil's a third of the overall energy mix? The answer is one, two, three, four, five decades, 50 years. Point is that it takes 40 to 50 years for an energy transition to happen. Second point, more subtle, more important. In each one of these transitions, we were moving from a less good to a more better type of fuel. Moving from wood to coal, we were moving up the energy density concentration of 
that particular fuel source. Moving from coal to oil, moving from a less to a higher density. That's easy. Economics will, will make that happen all day long. When we move to alternative energy, we're going to do something or try to do something that has not been attempted in all of this human history contained on this chart, which is to move from more concentrated to less concentrated energy sources. Not that it's impossible, but we ought to be mentally and economically geared for the idea that it's that economic forces alone aren't going to do it. They can't because it doesn't make economic sense in the same way that it did moving from a less dense to a more dense fuel source did. So we're going to have to think about that because to just think it's going to happen magically because we just need better political willpower is not sufficient in this case. It's going to require real effort, real focus, and possibly real changes in behavior to get that to happen. Um, and we can do it, but first we got to get the right story in our heads, right? It's it, moving from oil to, to solar is often presented that this is a morally superior and even economically superior action to take, but it's actually, it's not economically superior. It's going to take real work to make it better. All right. So if we look at where we are, um, this is great. Our world and data again from Vaclav Smil, they've done a great job uh, containing this. This brings us up through about 2019. And what's interesting, again, we still see yeah, about 80% here is is fossil fuels, sure. But if you look at those little smears at the top up there, so that's solar, modern biofuels, wind, those, those other renewables, those top little pieces, they're still tiny little pieces. They're gaining like crazy. The problem is, is the bottom is also growing uh, like crazy. So they're never, even though solar is going up by 50 or 100% per year, it's against a very small base growing very rapidly, but we have a very large base growing a little bit more slowly, yada, yada. Uh, we're still consuming more and more and more of fossil fuels on a yearly basis. And that's where we're at right now. The second number I need to leave you with is 22. And if you are 22 years old, you have been alive when half of all the oil ever burned in human history has been burned. Such is the nature of exponential functions. This last 22 year period right here, the area of all this fossil fuel in this 22 year period here is as much as all that came before. Welcome to doubling periods. I mentioned that before. The next period of doubling is going to have as much in it as all of human history up to that point in time. It's weird, but it's just how those uh, exponential functions work. So that's why I wanted to give you some, some grounding in it. All right. So now here's the actual challenge that we face as a species. Um, on the top, in yellow trunks, we have primary energy demand, which is uh, the guesstimate of how much energy the world is going to want based on the fact that we want all of our economic areas to grow. So the Congressional Budget Office thinks we're growing at 3.5%. France thinks it's growing at whatever percent. China has their own percentage. India wants their growth. When you sum those, and you know that it takes energy to create that amount of economic growth, this is the top line is the primary energy demand that the world has implicitly assumed is going to be there. The problem in this story is that on the bottom is we have fossil fuel net energy. This is a model. It could be wrong, could be right, might be off by 10 years, might not be, who knows. Let's take it as a given for now, whether we slide it forward or backwards 10 years, doesn't matter. This is the total amount of energy under this bar right here that we would, um, that's fossil fuels at peak right here. The problem in this story is that this same area right here in just 25 years, starting about 2030, 
humanity is making the implicit assumption that it is going to replace 100% of total output from fossil fuels by other means in order to keep its economy growing. And we're going to keep the economy growing to keep our financial system happy. If our financial system isn't happy, it breaks down. If it breaks down, we can't operate our economy, which means we can't build alternative energy. It's a very complex system. So we have to be aware that this challenge of making a 100% transition, in essence, in 25 years has never been done in human history. And this is trying to move from a less concentrate from a more concentrated to a less concentrated form of energy. Again, not that that can't be done or it's a bad idea, but we should be aware that has a whole new set of challenges that we haven't faced before. So culturally, we're going to expect it to just sort of happen because we just transition to enter new energy sources when we want to. And the answer is no, we don't. We move from worse to better sources of energy when we want. This time, we're going to have to move from a more concentrated to a less concentrated form of energy. It can be done, but it's not going to operate the same as it did before through standard market forces. Even worse, we're going to expect to do all of that one more time here just 20 years later. And that's, again, a, a very serious challenge right there. That's going to be one, two, two whole units of combined massive energy output from fossil fuels, peak output in the next 20 years. And then again and again and again forever. Uh, this, If this all looks stretched really far out into the future, if my youngest is uh, in her 20s, if she lives to the same age as my grandfather, she will live to the year 2096. Um, so so she, my, my kid, my daughter is on this chart. You're all on this chart. This is our primary challenge. Can we do it? Only if we get the right stories in our minds. So, uh, you know, here's, we read stories about, I read stories about this all the time. This is from an MIT study. They said, hey, at the current rate, we're replacing fossil fuels with these other forms of energy. This is from 2018. They said, ah, it's going to take 400 years to transform the energy system. Uh, we haven't got 400 years in this story, obviously, where we are in the fossil fuel story. And as well, we now have some real world examples where we know that the alternative energies, the clean energies, they're not ready for prime time, principally because we don't have battery, we don't have storage technologies that work right now. So we saw in 2021 in Texas, half of Texas's wind turbines, they froze up during a winter storm. Whoops, wrong time. That didn't work out. More recently, we found out that um, Germany had spent the most of any nation on its energy vend, its, its clean energy policies, bringing in solar wind, decommissioning coal and nuclear nuclear. They did that. And then uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict broke out. They lost access to natural gas. And it turned out, whoops, what did Germany do? Well, they turned immediately to fossil, uh, to coal in this case. Um, they also had a similar problem where they had just a bad run of weather in 2021, even before the Ukraine conflict, and they still had to turn back to coal and natural gas. So the alternative energies we currently have aren't quite ready for prime time. And when we get stories like this coming out, these make it politically more difficult to convince people that they should invest more in this as a central technology. Is an edge peripheral technology? Fantastic. But to take center stage, not ready for prime time. Um, and that's according to the real world data we have. So again, energy and economy, tightly, tightly linked. The economy is how we organize ourselves so that we can do fancy things. Like making a solar panel is not easy to make that prime silica grade blanks that we we turn into the silica um, conversion units there, 
Very complicated. Super complicated stuff. It's ultra, ultra, ultra pure. Five nines pure. 99.99999% pure silica blanks in order to make solar panels. To get to that level of complexity, you need a functioning economy. And as well, most of that economy right now is being run with fossil fuels, 80%. But more importantly, the total amount of net surplus energy is more than 80% that comes to us from fossil fuels. And again, we've never done this before. We've never tried to do an energy transition in 25 years, let alone again in another 20 years after that. And all the things we're going to need in order to make this alternative energy, when you just ask a question uh, like Professor Simon Michaud does, and he just asks the question like, how long would we have to mine copper at its current pace in order to make it through that first energy transition, that next 25-year period? Because you need copper, right, to lay the big copper tubes that go out offshore to the wind farms or um, you know, the lithium that you're going to need for this or that. When he asks that question, it turns out we need hundreds, if not thousands of years at current rates of mining to get to version one of the alternative energy future. So if we're not having the conversation yet at the national and global levels to say, can we do that? And if we can't, what's our plan B? Like, how are we, should we make other arrangements or should we just pretend like that's not really a big deal? Um, and just as we saw with Jerome Powell, people just kind of shrug and go, oh yeah, we all know that's unsustainable. But it's kind of like you can feel almost like, oh, what are you going to do? You know, um, there's like no serious conversation about Jerome, if it's not sustainable, what does that mean? Or if we can't get the resources we need in time to go through an energy transition, what does that mean? What are the implications? So the first serious proposal I saw in the world was back in 2016. Nothing's come of it yet. But China said, well, if we wanted to have this global sort of electricity network with, you know, solar panels and deserts where it makes sense and wind farms up in, you know, Arctic regions where it makes sense because the wind blows all the time. It would require a $50 trillion global investment, which is basically two thirds of, of an entire world's economic output would have to be dedicated to just this project, which is just laying the pipes, the infrastructure, the, the transmission technology to get the power from where it's being created to where it's needed. Um, and I haven't seen any follow-up with that. Um, and if we look now at the third component of this, the environment, this is where my heart really lies. When I was a kid, we would take these trips to upstate New York, um, and the windshield always ended up looking like this, like in between gas stations, right? And my job as an eight-year-old boy was to climb on the hood of this car and scrape the windshield clean again. It was tricky because there were insects all over it. Today, I can do that trip forward and back and not have a single bug on the windshield anymore. And this is a global phenomenon and people notice this all over the world. And this first came to uh, on our alert because some people, hobbyists in Germany were tracking how many bugs there were. And they'd been doing this dutifully for years in sort of their German precision way, going out to parks and setting traps and collecting and measuring and weighing insects. And they started noticing a severe decline starting in the late 90s. And now it's global. So we know it's something environmental. The rusty patch bumblebee, 87% gone. I can stand under, um, I have fruit trees here. I can stand under them in spring. And if I don't have my own honey um, bees going, I don't hear bees anymore. It's pretty frightening. No question about it. Everybody's been talking about this insect apocalypse. Like, oh, what could it be? Nobody has any ideas, but, uh, but I do. Um, there was a new class of pesticides that came out in the mid-90s called neonicotinoids. They're 
awful. They're not really insecticides. They're biocides. Um, the, it, they're so poisonous that you put, um, you coat a, a kernel of corn with this stuff and you plant the corn seed and it grows into a full plant. The tissues of that plant are so toxic that any corn borer or other pest eating the plants of that mature tissues of that mature plant die. Uh, the amount on that seed, if a starling ate that or a, or a, a sparrow ate that, the bird will die. And this stuff has a thousand day half-life. That's call it three years. That means that if a farmer puts it on in year one and then puts it on in year two and puts it on in year three, it is bioaccumulating, principally in water, in waterways. So we don't see mayflies anymore. We don't see caddisflies. These are water-based insects. This is astonishing. And the whole world's kind of going, well, what are you going to do? The insects are disappearing. Like it's like we're Romans and we see a comet. We have no clue for what's happening. It's like just this weird thing. But my, my core degree in pathology, I came up through a, a biological and environmental sciences background. One does not wipe out the bottom of a 500 million year old food chain without consequences. That's what we're doing. And what we lack right now is the ability to say, maybe this stuff we started doing in the late 90s, maybe we shouldn't do any more of that. That would be a good idea. But we lack the capacity somehow to organize ourselves at this scale of 8 billion people to say, you know, Syngenta or Bayer making a billion or two a year off of their neonicotinoids. Maybe we could lose that. Maybe they could not make the money so we could get our insects back. That would be awesome. Well, they're running the experiment in Europe. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Um, phytoplankton. Phytoplankton. The core, the bottom of the food pyramid in the ocean. Uh, down 50% over the past few decades. Holy moly. What? It turns out there's a thiamine, uh, vitamin B6 is like missing in the entire food chain across all the oceans. So something humans are doing has caused uh, thiamine to disappear, which has huge impacts on fish and bird survivability, et cetera. It's just a puzzling lack of thiamine. They're like, and again, people are like, well, I don't know. Well, when did it start disappearing? What have we been doing new that maybe we should stop doing that, right? Well, it, apparently we can't even rally to the cause when it's ourselves, right? So human sperm counts have been declining worldwide. They're down by over 50% in the last 50 years. If you plot it out, eventually humans are no longer reproducing. You would think that would cause some alarm, some 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 serious inquiry. Maybe we could spend uh, 1 billion less bailing out one of these big banks and spend that money instead figuring this story out. But the, still, there's a puzzling lack of concern or appropriate focus on this. Um, and of course, when you wipe out the bottom of the food pyramid, sometimes your apex predators and sentinel species is where you detect it. So when they say North Atlantic right whales are, are not recording births, typical reason for an animal not to record to have a birth is because it's stressed. The most prime stress there is, is not being fed well. And so it turns out humans are busy now already at one current unit of economic um, uh, amount, one unit of economy in here in 2023, we're already harvesting Arctic, Antarctic krill, which is the next layer up from the bottom of the food pyramid. But this krill then feeds the fish and feeds the whales, which feeds the birds, which feeds the penguins, etc. So we're already harvesting at the bottom of the food pyramid. Why? Because that's, that's what's left in this story. And the world wants to double its economy one more time. And then one more time after that, what are we harvesting after we're harvesting krill? Like sooner or later, somebody has to stand up and go, hold it. This story doesn't make sense, right? And and that's that's my role in life, I guess. So so that's why I'm here and and why I'm counting on on y'all to 
really take a, a hard look at this and, and help get our story right. Because right now our eco dashboard is just like every light on our panel is just lit up at this point in time. The stresses we're seeing around water, fresh water, soil degradation into dirt, um, you know, the oceanic dead zones from all the pollution runoff from our agricultural practices, you name it, on and on and on. It's, it's pretty alarming. And yet the only plan we have is to grow our economy and make it double again. And then after that, one more time, I guess, until something breaks. But that's not a, not a very intelligent way to go forward. So as uh, economist Herbert Stein said, if something cannot go on forever, it'll stop. That's where I think we are in the story that if you feel that change, that really big change, you can just feel it in your bones. Something is not quite right. It's because of this stuff I've just been telling you about. We are an organism that was highly tuned to our biological sphere. We evolved up into it. And I believe we have the intuitive body receptive capacity to understand when it's time to move out of this valley we've used up into the next lush valley and we'd have nowhere to go now. That's sort of the my interpretation of some of the alarm and displacement activities we're seeing around this. But without energy, it doesn't matter. We can't grow our economy because as you saw, the economy and energy are tightly linked. If the energy isn't there, in particular surplus energy isn't there, this won't happen. If that doesn't happen, I'm pretty sure we get financial and economic instability first because we have a system that is dedicated, predicated, and addicted to growth. If it doesn't grow, it gets very unhappy very, very quickly. Um, so that's kind of where we're at in the story with that. The way I look at this at the end, um, we have just a few options. Option one, we get to live within our limits and we should have a full-throated conversation about that. We ought to just be like argue about it, have great opinion-based, fact-based conversations, say, you know, here's where I think you're right, here's where you're wrong, here's what we want to do, but we should learn to live within whatever those limits are. And if we do that, I think we got a shot at this, but first we have to agree that that we've got, you know, something that we really need to do, which is that limits actually exist. Our cultural narrative still says that limits don't really exist. Um, we just have to understand this is a sphere has a finite volume, finite surface area, finite amount of everything. Just like our stadium, it has only so much space, as it were, um, to, to grow into. And of course, without a healthy earth, there is no wealth whatsoever. You learn this as a rich person, you're rich until you lose your health. And then of course, your wealth doesn't matter at all. So uh, we need a healthy planet, obviously, but unfortunately that needs to be reinforced all the time. And option two is we just keep going until Earth resembles Mars or we just run out of stuff. We just smash into some sort of a limit wall. Those are our options. We either get the story right or we pretend as if that story doesn't have a, a, a date that's difficult until sometime in the future. But when we get there to that future, we're going to find that um, uh, we have we don't have the, the vigor. We don't have the resources left to do anything in the future that we would want to. So that's the story I have to tell. It's, it's really about economy, energy, environment, that the energy is the core of this story. We're just not being super rational about it as a species. And we need to very much get that story online. So there, that's it. Thank you very much for listening to all that. And uh, that's all I have to say about that. All right, with that, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Remember, hit like, hit subscribe if you like this. Come on by peakprosperity.com, become a member if you want to join the number one online resilience community. Because guess what? We're going to have to join together if we're going to get through this in any sort of style. And, well, I plan to. So would love to see you there. As always, 
Can't wait to read your comments down below. See you next time. Bye-bye.